Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. My thanks to last week's guest, Cal Ripken Jr. If you missed it, please go back and check it out. All of our episodes, including last season's, are available for you on iTunes and Play.it. And, of course, there is an archive on WFAN.com as well. This week, my guest is Rich Eisen, the lead host, uh, the face, if you will, of the NFL Network, uh, since its inception over a decade ago. Rich is a New Yorker, originally from Staten Island. He grew up a Yankees fan before gaining fame first as an ESPN anchor and now with NFL Network. Rich and I discussed some of his favorite memories growing up as a Yankees fan in the late 70s and 80s and his experience watching the late 90s dynasty from a different seat in the press box or in some cases the TV studio. Uh, listen closely to his account of watching his Yankees win the 1996 World Series and includes some killer facts of life references. Rich's memories of the 2001 World Series, which we both covered, are also interesting to hear. For me, too, this was fun conversation for me to have uh, because I got to hear someone's perspective on events I was around to watch and cover very closely. So I heard a little different take on things. A lot of times I'm asking my guests about things I remember or that I read or watched on TV, uh, but that I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily experience myself, so uh, this was fun in that regard. The NFL Draft takes place later this month in Philadelphia, and I spoke to Rich about the spectacle and the show that it has become. He will, of course, be hosting for NFL Network. It's a big night for the NFL, maybe the biggest night any sport can have that doesn't feature an actual game being played. The interest and the TV ratings for this event are pretty spectacular when you consider the action involved is reading names into a microphone. But it's a show nonetheless, and the NFL Network does a fabulous job covering it top to bottom, as you would expect. Rich gives us a little insight into the production and the spectacle of it all. Rich Eisen also hosts a three-hour show, The Rich Eisen Show, five days a week on DirecTV, Fox Sports Radio, and is archived as a podcast on iTunes as well. Last week, as he drove to work in L.A., Rich Eisen was kind enough to spend 30 with Murdy. Rich, the first question I'd like to ask everybody... What can you tell me about the first baseball game you ever went to? Oh, gosh. It was Shea Stadium. Uh, my my uncle took my brother and I to Shea Stadium. Um, Mickey Lolich was pitching for the Mets. And I was just thrilled to be in the outfield, uh, in a box down the outfield, and, and meeting John Milner before the game. <laughs> um that's the first baseball game I ever went to, or at least I could remember. And then I remember in like 1976, my my uh, my public school PS54, Staten Island, had a had a field. 
field trip to Yankee Stadium. Um, and it was right around then where I, you know, my older brother, uh, you know, I, I realized he loved the Mets and the Jets and the Knicks and the Rangers. Um, and I, I decided if I'm going to love the Jets and the Knicks and the Rangers, I needed to get my wins from somewhere. <laughs> any of those 77 or 78 I mean we're about the same age you would have been about 8 or 9 years old Did you have a problem at that point? You know, you'd been a, you'd been in the business for a while. You know, you obviously were at a, a major outlet. Did you have any problems separating your fandom from your reporting? Um, I never, you know, I never was a, a cheer in the press box guy. You know, I was always able to keep that, you know, keep that in me. You know, for the first minute, first, I mean, I covered the the nineteen ninety Rose Bowl, Bo Schembechler's last game yeah. for the Michigan. Daily two of that season, Michigan played UCLA in the regular season, and then um, so I had two trips to the Rose Bowl. I remember they were just announced, no cheering in the press box. Will eject anybody 
<laughs> what makes it what makes it worse is the reaction of ooh, you know. Like they, <laughs> yeah. So I've been accused of being very heartless in the house when something nasty happens and I don't react to it. That, that's wow. It's funny. First of all, I haven't learned the lesson that you learned. Like I still, I I don't cheer in the press box, but I react badly when my kids fall. So I I, I haven't learned that lesson. It's the ooh when you go ooh when you go oh when you go like that. It 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 confirms their fear that they just got hurt. Yeah. Maybe maybe you you finally turned me. I, I I will try to keep that in mind. Uh, yeah. You mentioned two thousand one, and you're always in my memory of the two thousand one World Series. You know, I covered that as my first year covering the team uh, on the beat, and you go through February, in, you know, through November into November. It's a, it's a long year, but what I remember with you specifically is we were after game seven the day after we're flying home and you and i are next to each other in the security line which was about eight miles long trying to leave phoenix to go back home and you know i mean we had known each other just casually from through the radio and the tv but uh i just remember being in line with you for a very long time during that uh during that stretch yeah i mean it was a it really was an a um, a frightening yet amazing time, certainly, you know, and what we're going through as a country right now where there's so much polarization and there's so much division and such little common ground that everybody really was uh, uh, together and cohesive um, and baseball was the the healing was the was the healing power in many ways Mm -hmm. i mean from the fact that you know um uh shea stadium was being used as a um staging area for for emergency services and yankee stadium was the site of uh a memorial for first responders and what piazza did with john franco and the mets um, coming back and hitting that homer against the Braves was really, really special. 
you know, Bank One Ballpark, home of the Diamondbacks, is right in the, I mean, directly in the uh, landing area of the Phoenix Airport. Right. And we were told we were told that planes were not going to be flying over that stadium. We mm. were told that the that the that there would be no air traffic during the World Series. And yet, I remember as the players are warming up, I'm on the Sports Center set in the outfield, and the and the stadium roof is open, and I'm watching 747s fly over like like it was, you know, LaGuardia wow. next to Shea. And we were turning to each other, and the guy who I was turning to, because he was the analyst that was with me, essentially, on SportsCenter for the entire World Series, to the point where we missed Game 2. They flew us home Game 2, ESPN. The Randy Johnson Game 2. We, yeah. we were flown home because we were the off-day crew that needed to be on the air in Yankee Stadium the next day. Okay. So, the guy I was next to and flew with and was there all the time was with Buck Showalter. Hmm. And that was a particularly, you know, uh, it left me awestruck in many ways. First of all, as I just told you about, yeah. you know, 1995 and that was Buck and, and, and the 94 strike and what the Yankees would have done, I believe, had hmm. there been no strike. Yeah. There would have been that Yankee Expos World Series that I think everyone assumed would happen yeah. and and then so there you got a guy who's not only the former manager of the American League team we helped build, build but the National League team in the Diamondbacks he was their first manager he helped build them yep. not only helped build them he helped build the stadium he told me Showalter told me one story as we're sitting there getting ready for a game you know it's a quiet moment he, he started telling me about how um, you know he helped design the ballpark well, what do you mean? Well, if you remember, there was like this small sort of column of a dirt path between home plate and the pitcher's mound. Yep. It was his idea to just have that small column of dirt. Um, like the ceramic baseballs that were around the, the perimeter of the outdoor part of the stadium, he had that idea. Hmm. Um, also, he remembers jogging before the park opened up around the uh, perimeter of the stadium, base paths all the way out to the warning track and then back to home plate. And he remembers running around the stadium the first time, and it looked pretty strange to him. He wondered why, and he realized when he was going around it for the second time that the, the foul poles had the netting in foul territory. Oh, yeah. That they were in the wrong way. Wow. And that he had to make a call when he was done jogging that they brought in a crane and lifted both foul poles and twisted them to get the netting into their territory you know <laughs> the ball hits the net it shows you a deep bear ball yeah like that was that was that's how granular a presence Buck was in the Diamondbacks ascension and now here he is let go by both teams and they're both in the World Series against each other and it was really intense for him and to be the guy who's sitting next to him the whole time was really you know out of body and bizarre for me um but, you know, then you go to Yankee Stadium for game three and George Bush threw out the first pitch mm-hmm. and that was like Fort Apache, the Bronx, <laughs> where there were, there were snipers on the roof and helicopters everywhere. Then some incredible games where the Yankees came back, Brocious home run and Tino's home run leading to Jeter's Mr. November to send this series back to Arizona because the Yankees, you know, at least in my mind, 
they couldn't lose the team from New York can't lose the 9-11 World Series yeah. yet we all know what happened that was an incredible World Series sweetie I mean that really was and then you know uh, my wife my then fiance soon to be fiance and future wife was covering it for Fox Sports West so I remember sitting with her um behind home plate in the eighth inning we grabbed two seats and we noticed we were amongst the Diamondbacks wives and as Mo Rivera blew them away in the eighth inning yeah. the Diamondbacks wives were crying over the inevitable Wow. Uh, that never materialized obviously as we all know wow I, you know what I remember about that ninth inning is I had I, I would seats in the auxiliary press box out in the outfield and as the ninth inning started, I started to make my way down towards the home plate side and get down towards the clubhouse because, you know, obviously going to cover the celebration. And I remember watching the entire Diamondbacks ninth inning rally unfold on a small TV in the basement level by the elevators. And everybody was lined up. The, all the crews, all the media was lined up outside the Yankees clubhouse ready to go in to cover that celebration. As soon as the tying run scores, I rem- there was a stampede of camera crews, and you were probably right in the middle of it, a stampede of cameras and reporters and people from the uh, first base side over to the third base side where the Diamondbacks clubhouse was going to be. I mean, honestly, you could have gotten crushed if you were standing in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just intense. Man, uh, and that was that was the last World Series I I I, uh, I covered. Wow! Um, because I was I was already at the NFL Network at '03, and then at '02 they didn't even they didn't send they didn't send me. Mm. So that's where I that's where I also realized there might be some writing on the wall. <laughs> but um, you know, it it, it was just um, incredible, and to be a lifelong Yankee fan and to be at ESPN starting my sports center career this joke with Joe Buck because that was his first World Series 96 the Yankees yep. six game win over over Atlanta and Joe Girardi's triple yeah. against Greg Maddox which is still one of the greatest hits in the history of Yankees postseason everybody loves to joke about Girardi's binder they drive, he drives him crazy he's still I mean he's got a place in Yankee postseason lore with his bat more than anything else and um Layerich home run, the, the Pettit game five went over Smoke. Rivera providing Wetland with the setup and all that stuff was just great. I, I watched it from my, my cubicle at, at ESPN. It was Joe Buck's first World Series and it was my first year at ESPN. I remember just being so pissed because, you know, I couldn't get to Yankee Stadium. I was doing Sports Center that night. So I remember thinking to myself, isn't this amazing? Yankees are finally in the World Series for the first time. <laughs> for, the, for the first time since, you know, Dave Rigetti lost to Fernando Valenzuela. Yeah. And and I can't go down because I'm on Sports Center with the irony of that, but my dreams come true, so I can't I can't, you know, visualize my other dream in person. And just as I was just telling myself, you know, this is a first class, high class problem, shut up. Yeah. Fox started showing the celebrities that were at the game, and they were all like on soon-to-be new Fox. Yeah. 
you know, TV shows that were coming out, so they used it to promote their fall lineup. And I remember one of the people they showed sitting in a perfect seat was Kim Fields, the actress. <laughs> Tootie, back to life. And I thinking to myself, holy crap, you know, Tootie's at the game and I'm not. How the hell does that happen? But, you know, 98 is when I started doing stuff for ESPN and and uh, ESPN Radio covering baseball. And so to be at 98, 99, 2000, 2001 World Series for ESPN. And it's still one of the blessings of, of my career. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I swear to God, I think Mrs. Garrett sprayed me with champagne that night. There you I, go. I mean... Turn around, look out. There was Justine <laughs> Bateman. You know what? Listen, Rich, it just goes to show you, you take the good, you take the bad. Uh, oh. It is <laughs> hey, listen, the draft is coming up. The NFL draft is in Philadelphia this year, April 27th and 29th. Uh, right on the Rocky Steps, right? You're going to be broadcasting outside from the Rocky Steps? Yes, they, the uh, the podium is going to be on the, the steps of the museum. And I I am being told that they're making the, the draftees walk down to the commissioner, which is a nice roll of the dice of these 320-pound guys, <laughs> you know, uh, we're open for good weather, and um, it's supposed to be an incredible scene. They're already building the draft town that's going out there right now, where you and I are talking two weeks removed from it. And, um, you know, that's what the NFL wants. You know, uh, ob- obviously, anybody from New York will agree that Radio City Music Hall is as iconic as you can get. Yeah. Why would you want to move it out of there? Um commissioner in the NFL kind of got tired of um, seeing people in the fourth balcony asleep during the sixth round <laughs> of draft. And so they decided to move it. I think one year Dolan uh, helped aid that process by telling the, the, the NFL that the dates that they wanted for the draft were already taken by an Easter festival show that never materialized. So, <laughs> thank James Dolan once again. At least he didn't drag the draft out by its neck. Then they went to Chicago and uh, put it in, in an iconic theater, but right across the street from Grant Park. And hundreds of thousands of Midwest football fans drove from places like Iowa and Wisconsin, Michigan, the Dakotas, Minnesota. Uh, I met people from Missouri, Arkansas. I mean, drove for a long way. Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. And I think they saw the value in having it outdoors, giving the last day sort of a festival-like atmosphere to it and a celebratory atmosphere. So Chicago for two years and then this year's Philadelphia, and I would be stunned if we are not in Jerry Jones's new palatial no. uh, practice facility in Frisco, Texas next year. I would be, I'd be floored if we weren't there um, and, and having a, a big Texas-style draft. Um, and that's what the NFL wants. Listen, so, I'm... 
I'm curious, Rich, from your perspective, if the draft itself is fun. Now, I I used to watch a lot more college football than I do, so I I used to enjoy the draft a lot because I knew these players and I enjoyed seeing the things about them. But what's fascinating to me is the show that it has become because I remember a couple of years ago just being floored by the fact that the NFL draft outrated on television – actual NBA playoff games, including, you know, ones, I think LeBron James and the Miami Heat were playing at the same time as the draft, and the draft drew a higher rating. I'm thinking, this is nuts. One of the greatest athletes of our time is playing playoff basketball right now, and more people would rather watch an old man walk up to the podium to announce names. I know the draft is is like kind of the lifeblood and where the next generation of players comes from, but the actual process of it, I find fascinating how popular that is. Is it still fun for you? Oh, yeah. It's a blast. I mean, it is the most uh, physically challenging. I mean, I'm sitting on my ass, but I... I... (laughs) I think I need to figure this out. This, this may be year 10 or 11 of me doing picks one through uh, 256. Um, now Trey Wingo will be joining me in that club mm. this time around. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a blast. I mean, I mean, you, you, made, you, you pointed out, like, uh, as, as opposed to the other uh, highly popular draft in the NBA, um, you know most of the people who are being drafted. Like right. the person who's sitting there wondering who, you know, the um, Chargers could draft to help launch the rebirth or the Jet fan that's sitting there wondering who Jets might be able to pick at sixth overall to launch a rebirth is not going to be some polysyllabic, you know, polysyllabic <laughs> Slovakian yeah. you've ever seen play. Right. You know, I mean, there, there isn't going to be a Kristaps Porzingis moment in, in this draft because of that. And, you know, um, I think obviously that's a step up. Also, the fact that the NFL, more than any other major sport, you can go from outhouse to penthouse in one year. Mm. Legitimately, that can actually happen. So the fact that you're sitting there and you're watching who your team can pick, uh, I think that that is... Um, helpful that that you can actually think that this is this is the dawning of a new age just by hearing one name called although i would you know defend roger goodell that he's not an old man i mean he's, <laughs> yeah. he's in the late 50s um but at any rate um as we saw on your twitter feed with your jack nicholas comment the other yeah, day i'm old man yes you're, you're an ageist but, but you know more than anything else it is a show sweetie it is i mean more than ever um the NFL could do this like a fantasy draft and put it on an encrypted website and everybody could pick their draft picks within a day. Instead, it's dragged out over a three-day extravaganza. Mm-hmm. And certainly in this day of social media, in this day of Twitter, um, as you know, um, the commissioner is no longer the disseminator of the information as to who's been picked. Right. Uh, it's, some, it's some beat writer who gets it and tweets it out. Because it's no longer a member of of the uh, of, a, of an NFL partner mm-hmm. media group. That mm-hmm. is that is not the case. If you want, if you're in business with the NFL, and you want to, or you want to be in the business with the NFL, somebody in your media group is not tweeting out the result of the first round draft choice. Yeah. it's just not happening. Yeah, because you know in the NFL, and obviously I'm biased. 
guys, because I'm a host of the television product, the NFL wants to maintain this as a television product. And and to the point where the commissioner will sometimes uh, be conducting business behind the scenes with, uh, you know, with a group of veterans or chit-chatting with a, a little mom and a dad of the draftee that just got drafted. And we're sitting there going, okay, uh, three picks are in and we haven't announced them yet, so yeah. let's get to them. Um, so, you know, or sometimes ESPN is in commercial break and we're on the air or vice versa and the league has to wait till everybody's back from break to send the commissioner out to announce the pick. And meanwhile, if you're sitting at home on, on your Twitter feed, you know what picks four, five, and six are. We don't. I mean, we specifically tell our truck not to get in our ear to give us the information that most people already know. Okay. And if we suppose on the air we think it's this cornerback or this defensive end and it actually materializes into the person we're talking about, then people are sitting at home thinking that we're faking, we're, we're putting it on, we're fake news, or we're just trying to look smarter in their eyes, uh, trying to pull their wool over their eyes. We're, we just want to be kept in the dark. We want it to be a surprise. And I fear that we're going to be left in the uh, new millennium dust one day and that um, you know, a generation who wants to know information right away in the palm of their hands does not want to sit around and have a show put on for them on a much bigger rectangle that's hanging on their wall. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but for the moment, I'm, I'm working in a product where that television product um, is still a viable, desired um, presentation of of a very popular day, which is, by the way, the only event on in the NFL calendar where the principals themselves, the deciders, are not physically there. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's crazy. The whole thing is really whack, and the NFL <laughs> still does it the old school way, which is person in location, team location A, calls proxy of that team in Philadelphia at a draft table who writes down the card and it's hand-delivered to a desk where it's recorded by the NFL and then written on a card for the commissioner. And by the way, the card that the commissioner reads is written out with the player's name Mm. already, which is phonetically spelled on the card. And the blank that they fill in is the team name and the draft number selection uh, around, etc. That's what the card is. So they just grab the player card, Miles Garrett's card, write down Cleveland and then the number one and hand it to Roger. And he announced that that's the way the draft's done, which is still very 20th century if you think about it. <laughs> You're not letting Warren Beatty near anywhere near this, are you? Hell no. La La Land is not getting drafted in two weeks. Listen, I've got so much more I would love to cover with you, but we're kind of out of time. So. Well, I'm around. You could, let's do it again. Not a problem. You I, know how to reach me. I would love to. I'd love to, you know, there's uh, your your memory on some, some of these things is so outstanding, and uh, I love the detail that you provide and your experiences of it. And I've got I've got material for another 30 with Murdy if you are willing. So I appreciate uh, your time. And uh, the draft is still a fun event. And I hope uh, I hope you don't you know, have any major injuries on the Rocky Steps. I hope Run Rich Run continues up the Rocky Steps. I appreciate that. And, and maybe you should, you know, unfortunately your last name doesn't rhyme with 60. Yes. So yeah. It might be a design 
flaw in your in your pot. I'm just don't mean to point it out, but listen, uh, not uh, nine hole golf good. courses are very popular sometimes. So <laughs> very good. Well, call me back anytime. It's not a problem. I truly do have so much more to talk to Rich about. He teamed, of course, with the late Stuart Scott on a very entertaining edition of Sports Center in the late 90s and early 2000s. And Rich has also taken his NFL Combine 40-yard dash to great heights, annually turning it into a fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Hospital. It was an event that started on a whim with tongue-in-cheek, and it's now generated money for a worthy cause, and Rich deserves a laurel and a hearty handshake for that. Hopefully, Rich will return as a guest, uh, but I've got a lot more fun things coming this summer on the podcast, the first of our special features coming in just a couple weeks. I'll tell you more about that very soon. That's it for this edition of 30 with Murdy. Thanks for listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 